This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. It's been very important to understand the conditions of reproductive life that women lived before Roe and how little control they had over their sexuality, their fertility, and their ensuing lives. We went to a Planned Parenthood in D.C. and they asked me if I was married and unfortunately I told them the truth and they said we can't prescribe birth control pills for you. I was sterilized by the Dalcon Shield in 1973, I developed acute PID, pelvic inflammatory disease, and encountered a doctor who did not want to remove the Dalcon shield because of his own eugenical thinking. He thought, well, you've already had a baby, so I'm not going to take the Dalcon shield out. It must be some kind of STD you have. So he, for six months, he kept misdiagnosing my problem as my stomach became more and more distended until I actually went into a coma after my fallopian tubes exploded. And so taken to the hospital in an ambulance, woke up with all of my reproductive organs missing. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Abortion, the Body Politic, part two. Today, we're stepping into the past, long before Roe, to trace the roots of today's abortion debate. The right to make decisions over our own physical selves is the fundament of democracy. Feminist icon Gloria Steinem. You know, in the past, when women expressed this, they have been declared to be witches. This is how women got to be witches, you know, because they practiced medicine for other women. And so women would go into their homes pregnant and come out unpregnant. And this was perceived as witchery, not only in, in Europe, but uh, to some extent in New England, in this, in this country, too. Here's the thing about abortion. It has always existed, as activist Loretta Ross points out. As long as women have sex with men, they're always going to want to control their reproduction. Whether it was cow dung back in the ancient Roman times or lie, once that got 
created in more modern times. And the majority of the country does not oppose abortion. That's historian Leslie Regan. The majority of the country does not want any of these kinds of laws. Why then is abortion such a contentious, even volatile issue in this country? Ricky Solinger is a historian and author focusing on reproductive politics. Certainly, starting with the slavery regime, which defined white women as distinct, as essentially distinct from black women, and black women as essentially distinct from white women, one can trace the different positions and the different consequences of reproductive bodies depending on race. And here again is Loretta Ross. My name's Loretta Ross, and I'm an associate professor at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. I was one of the 12 Black women who created the theory and practice of reproductive justice in June of 1994. At the beginning of the enslavement, most of the enslavers thought that they could import sufficient women Black, you know, people from Africa, women and men, in order to enlarge their labor force. But early in the 1800s, a law was passed forbidding the importation of additional African slaves. And so that's when the forced breeding became the dominant strategy. One of the things that frustrates me frequently is to the extent that any of this reproductive oppression is covered, It's always covered from the perspective of what was done to the Black community. Rarely do people cover it from the perspective of what agency we exercised, what we did for ourselves. And they missed the larger story of reproductive resistance in our community. After the Civil War, that's when articles began to appear in newspapers, white newspapers for the most part, saying that the black birth rate was a problem. But just until 1865, it was not. Because when it wasn't about free labor, then the same reproductive productivity was problematized, even though the reproductive caretaking was not, because you still had mammies and things like that. So you had this bifurcated kind of racist analysis that said that Black women were irresponsible when it came to taking care of our own children, but we're very good nannies at taking care of white ones (laughs) for some reason. (laughs) But interestingly enough, from the perspective of Black women, W.E.B. DuBose did a sociological study starting at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. And he reported that the Black birth rate between the end of the Civil War and when he published his research had been cut in half from the days of slavery. And that was also the time that my research discovered that to the extent that we have perspectives from Black women uh, that were sometimes reported in Black newspapers as well as Black women's organizations, that they were talking amongst themselves about managing their own fertility. They bought from Africa a lot of midwifery knowledge. So they knew which plants and herbs 
could cause, you know, an abortion. I think it was in 1892, I saw a black feminist author who said, not all women are designed to be mothers and we need to be able to control, you know, what happens to our bodies and stuff. And of course, this was two decades before Margaret Sanger came about. All I can do is speculate from the breadcrumbs of evidence that I found is that they wanted desperately to control their own fertility after enduring, you know, centuries of forced breeding and not only multiple pregnancies, but also when you're already living in miserable racial and economic conditions, you want the best future for the children that you do have and keep. Abortion was legal under common law in early America, but they wouldn't have called it abortion, really. Uh, We're talking about um, early in pregnancy up until the point of quickening. That was legal under common law. I'm Professor Leslie Regan. I'm a professor in the Department of History at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. My book is When Abortion Was a Crime, Women, Medicine and Law in the United States, 1867 to 1973. Quickening is the moment when um, a woman can feel the fetus moving within her. We might say you could feel kicking. You know, it's something you wait say, oh, it's kicking. So, and when that occurred, then she knew, oh, there, there's life within me. And they would stop trying to end this pregnancy because after quickening was when, if you ended a pregnancy, if you aborted, that was what was against the law. But quickening, as you can see, is defined by women themselves. We know from domestic guidebooks and um, advertisements, and because they would talk about it as their menses were obstructed. Their body was out of equilibrium. It was always very uh, euphemized language like that. In the Black newspapers of the day that were beginning to be published, there was a product called Puff, P-U-F. And the tagline to Puff was end your calendar worries. <laughs> well, what is a woman worried about the calendar, right? When that period is missing. <laughs> There's domestic guidebooks produced in the 1700s and the 1800s, and they're republished over and over and over again. And they include information and recipes of how to make teas and how to bring uh, the menses back. I think for all all races of women. We shared this kind of information around our kitchen tables and had conversations that we did that men weren't privy to because we didn't think it was their business. That's what I've seen consistently through, you know, millennia. That's what women do. We take care of business and we don't care what the church says, what the state says and what the men in our lives say. We know who's going to be around for that baby and who's not. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's a feature of our plumbing that we have a much higher stake in these conversations than the sperm donors. The thing to remember is that women's lives up until this point were part of the private sphere. But in the 1850s, things started to change and men wanted to control, even criminalize those private decisions. First, you have a, uh, you have a very small um, group of elite physicians pushing for new legislation. Um, Horatio Storer, a specialist in gynecology and obstetrics at Harvard um, in Massachusetts, 
is is the person behind this. And he begins to talk about how abortion is infanticide and that when women think that they're um, getting their menses back before quickening, that they were all wrong, that this this was really a life. So Storer really did something when he started to name this early period when people were trying to get their menses back, named that as an abortion. So he took something that was illegal, understood to be immoral, understood to be, um, you know, taking a life, a, a, a developing life, and applied that term to this early period that had never been treated as the same. Once slavery was legally ended, then the forced breeding that had been visited on Black women suddenly got visited on white women. And that's when you had the beginning of the agitation for the legal restrictions on birth control information and abortions, ending up in the 1873 Comstock Law, which Comstock, Anthony Comstock was the postmaster general. And he's the one, yeah, right. What does mail service have to do with birth control, right? <laughs> but he was the one who uh, campaigned to make it illegal to distribute information or devices that led to birth control, which of course was most accessible to white women at that time. So this is post-Civil War. You know, the country has changed. African-Americans, newly freed, enslaved people are free. They are supposed to have the vote, and for a while, Black men do have the vote. So this is part of the, I think, political underpinnings of why these laws get passed. The other important part of this is, at that time, women were organizing in various ways uh, against prostitution, um, calling out men. They were also trying to get into medical school. So the same doctor, Storer, and the politicians are like, you should be doing your duty. Women do not belong out trying to be involved in politics. They should be having babies and raising them to be the citizens of America. And, and the doctors are particularly threatened by the possibility of women becoming doctors, taking over their business, frankly, and they resent their efforts to get into medical school, to get into Harvard, to claim higher education. So it's in the 1860s and 1870s that the states make abortion illegal and criminalize it. By 1880, every state has criminalized abortion from conception on. My name is Lexi, and my abortion was amazing. Um, I did not feel that way in the moment because of all the stigma and barriers I experienced, but choosing not to become a parent was the best decision I've ever made for myself. I had an abortion when I was in college. I was a junior attending UMass, University of Massachusetts Amherst. Actually, let me let me provide some background information. Um, I was born to a young single mom um, and raised by my grandparents. Love them to death, but they are very old school to elderly black people from the deep south. Um, and I was raised in a very conservative household. 
Um, I also attended Catholic school from kindergarten to 12th grade. So I did not, I did not really have much knowledge or information about my own body, any type of sexual health. So when I did go to college and didn't know anything about um, protection or really well-informed um, knowledge about options if I were to be pregnant, I was really shook. Um, and I didn't really know what to do. Like, I didn't know who to call. <clears throat> you know, my family, like, we've dealt with a lot of fam familial separation. So, you know, incarcerations, so, like, my mom wasn't around. Um, like I said, my grandparents, that wasn't really an option. I was, did not have a lot of money. I was trying to finish school. My partner was very abusive. And yeah, I actually initially intended to continue my pregnancy. I was going to continue my pregnancy just because of these things that I had heard about abortion, which weren't good. The very false narratives, the stigmatizing language, the hush-hush around it. I found out I'm pregnant. I'm like, I need to go get an ultrasound. So I go get an ultrasound and I was only about four weeks along, which is pretty early to find out. In, a, in the following weeks, I became extremely sick, um, bedridden. Like I was telling my grandparents I had mono. I was trying to like contact the school, trying not to like <laughs> get it like kicked out because I'm missing so much class while also like trying to avoid my abusive partner on campus. And yeah, it was a mess. I was so sick. I lost like 30 pounds in like a month and a half. I did not know what was happening in my body. I did call my OBGYN and they were like, well, we can't see you. What's happening to you is normal and you have to be over 10 weeks before we book an appointment with you. And I'm like, what? I'm an older sibling of four and I've been there. I've helped my mother give birth. Like I have seen many pregnancies in my family and I knew what was happening to me was not normal. And even, even if these things come with pregnancy, if you're not helping me get through them, who knows? Without surrounding support, I was like, there's no way I can make it through it. And in my mind, all I can think about is how many black women and other women of color die at the hands of this medical system that we have. And all I could think when I called Planned Parenthood was I will not die because of this pregnancy and because no one will listen to me. So I did have medication abortion, went to Planned Parenthood, got the pills, went home, me and my best friend. And then I woke up and the pregnancy was over. And for the first time in six weeks, I had eaten real food and my best friend had just went and got a like 12 inch chicken parm grinder. Um, and I just, I was like, I need that. <laughs> and physically, like I was relieved, even if my, even if I couldn't, you know, grasp that at the time, because when I went in the bathroom and I saw the pregnancy was over, all I, like, it was just the biggest sign of relief immediately followed by a lot of internalized shame and stigma and just hatred. But in that moment, I am able to look back and say, even regardless of everything, that was, it was nothing but relief in that moment that I knew I was not going to be a parent because I had made this decision to have an abortion.
it did take me a hot minute to be able to differentiate my abortion being negative and all the external barriers and all the other things around it being negative. It was really coming and learning that, you know, it's the same white supremacist rhetoric that tells me that I'm a murderer, I'm this awful person for having abortion. Okay, well, that's the, the same, the same people would also call me a welfare queen if I had continued my pregnancy and needed to help with social services and probably wouldn't have access to them. So I would have probably just been homeless and been an awful person for that. Or the same white supremacy that I continue my pregnancy, I have a child, I'm raising this child, and you go and murder them in the street for no reason. So learning really how nothing Black and Brown and Indigenous people and families do under white supremacy is good enough really helped me realize that I don't, I don't need to follow any of that. The reason I share my story is because historically, Black and Brown and Indigenous people, you know, we've always been told and dictated how to raise our families, what to do. We've always been shadowed. Um, and we're here to claim that. It's ours. We're taking our time back, period. More right after this. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. In the first couple of decades after abortion becomes illegal, abortions continue to happen. Again, here's Leslie Regan. So there's always an exception in the law, and those, those abortions that are done by doctors are called therapeutic abortions. The Great Depression in the 1930s increases demand um, hugely. People who collected evidence, they, they could see it. They could see a rise in abortions and a decline in family size. There are clinics uh, that develop that are open, that are well-known, um, of people who provide abor- who are specialists in abortion. And 
They will have an office with their name on the door. They have business cards and people know who they are. They're, they're people who provide excellent abortions. They're safe. It's, ve- it's very safe. But there were also questionable and sometimes dangerous options that emerged at the same time. So in New York City, for example. Historian Daniel Williams. There were some abortion syndicates, which by the 1940s were uh, performing, according to some claims uh, at the time, up to 250,000 abortions per year. So it was a a thriving business. But they were connected with organized crime. They employed non-licensed physicians, a lot of uh, medical school dropouts and others who had a little bit of medical training, but not enough to practice legitimately. And most of the time they could practice somewhat safe abortions, but it, it varied. And of course, women were taking their lives into their hands, going to some of those places. The so-called back alley butchers. Professor Carol Jaffe is a sociologist who has long studied abortion care. Both physicians, as well as non-physicians, who were horrible. I mean, who were, who were medically inept. I mean, this is where most of the injuries and deaths came from, in addition to women attempting their own abortions. Uh, and these, these guys, and it really was all guys at the time, uh, were also very ethically challenged. There are horrible stories of demanding sexual favors or stopping halfway through the abortion and demanding more money. These butchers made an enormous impression on the rest of the medical field. The rest of medicine that had not been involved uh, in abortion care. And remember, the abortion providers before Roe were tiny, tiny portion of medicine as a whole. Um, They somehow equated abortion provision with these very ethically and and medically challenged people. And so beginning in the 1930s, several doctors, especially in New York, said that the law was not working. And rather than try to make abortion laws more stringent, what they wanted to do was to make abortion legal in certain circumstances. Rather than, than continue to endanger more women, what would be best for society what would be best for women's health would be to just admit that we can't really control women's behavior with these laws. But, Leslie Regan points out, these doctors pushing for reform, they're outliers, at least at this point. They are radicals um, politically. They're, They're very unusual. What happens instead is that abortion, despite being illegal, becomes much more visible. I mean, it starts in the 30s, but really by 1940, the methods of policing abortion change. And these clinics that had been operating for 10, 20, 30 years openly suddenly are raided and closed uh, by the police and prosecutors. They now are going after these safe practitioners who are who are also quite visible and deliberately will time raids. You know, a group of police, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten police burst in and hopefully find a specialist in the middle of a procedure, capture that person, the doctor, uh, the patient, and all of the recovering patients and collect all of the medical records and gather 
all of it for evidence for prosecution um, for illegal abortion. And this became the standard across the country, these police raids. So it became harder to find a good provider and it became more expensive. Meanwhile, hospitals start cracking down too. The departments of obstetrics and gynecology start to create these therapeutic abortion review boards um, inside their own departments. So these committees are set up and they end up deciding what is a legal, legitimate abortion, what's legal and what isn't. And it meant women, they knew they had to get permission, which of course means more delay. And, you know, in some of these cases I saw, there were four or five doctors who were on this committee and every single one of them had to personally determine how far along her pregnancy was. So it's, you know, coerced multiple gynecological exams. That means doctors learn, oh, these cases will never get by and they don't bring them. So that also fuels this sense that that doctors have in hospitals that they need to be careful. They don't want their reputations hurt by abortion. It is, you know, it's common and yet it's highly stigmatized. It's, it's, it's in the paper a lot associated with death and crime and the mob. And, and yet you can't talk about it. And in response, the people who provide abortions, knowing now that this is what's happening, they change their practices. It becomes much more clandestine. It, it goes underground. It makes it very scary. And everyone is, of course, aware of the potential of police. And they realize that they are breaking the law. So it really changes the practice and availability of abortion. In the past, there was much more um, worry and agony and fear about whether or not you were pregnant. Again, here's Gloria Steinem. And if you were pregnant and didn't wish to be, much more likelihood that you would have to somehow get together the money and the time, often in secret, uh, to travel far away and get an abortion. That was terrifically painful and time-consuming and ridiculous because that's not a democracy. Either we have, in a democracy, at a minimum, decision-making power over our own bodies, or we are not living in a democracy. To lose that power, if you're a man, you have to commit some horrible crime and go to prison. You know, it's, yet it was applying to all, to all women, uh, no matter what we did. How many institutions of society had to collaborate in order to suppress women's sexual and reproductive autonomy and support second-class citizenship for women. Historian Ricky Solinger. So whether we're talking about the media, the ways that doctors set up punishing abortion boards and hospitals, how doctors refused to give prescriptions for contraception until after marriage. This is a cautionary message for the future. People who understood that being able to control fertility is an absolute life necessity for most women. There were many people all over the country who capitalized on women's desperation 
the reason that I stress the importance of the project of criminal abortion and how um, many institutions were involved in bolstering and enforcing the culture and the politics that degraded women's sexuality and reproduction is because that has such implications for the future. The thing that went on then in 1966 was that there was nowhere to go for help. You had no way of finding out where you could get an abortion. It was like a secret. I didn't even know who amongst the women, girls that I knew were sexually active. I'm Lisa Kushner, I'm 75. I had an abortion in 1966 when they were illegal. I was living in New York at the time. (laughs) I didn't know anybody who I could ask. I had a couple of relatives who were nurses, so I asked them, but they didn't have any resources for me. And there was a lot of like shame around it. Like, could I even ask about it? It was a real powerless feeling and uh, a sensation of like, I actually, I thought I would have to die doing an abortion on myself is what I thought would happen. If I couldn't get, um, some, you know, some kind of access, I was going to have to die. It didn't occur to me at all that that would be a reasonable option to go through with a pregnancy. So um, in the age of uh, pay phones and n- not having cell phones, I made a thousand, hundreds of phone calls to women that I didn't know, but friends of friends of friends who may know somebody who was an abortion. Finally, after like a couple of weeks of making a lot of calls, somebody called me back and I don't know her name. And, um, but she told me every single thing about her abortion experience and all the details, everything to expect. And I feel like she saved my life because um, it was just like a lifeline for my future. And then I had a few weeks to decide how I was gonna get three hours away to another state. I couldn't figure out what to do, but I eventually told my twin brother because he had a car and I figured he would have to drive me, but he forced me to tell my parents And um, it was shocking to my poor parents. My mother just slapped me for the first time in her life. And my father like froze. And this is where my story is very different from the story of most women because they ended up helping me. They ended up helping me go for this abortion. They went with me to this uh, dark office building in Newark, New Jersey. We walked to the side entrance of this building, which had an open door. The hallways were dark, and there was a very little bit of light fading coming in from a couple of windows. There were no lights on, and we're looking for the numbers on the doors to get to the right office. And we're going down this hallway, which was very long in my memory, 265, 267, that kind of thing. And then you turn a corner and then there was whatever the number was. And then opening the door, looking into this dark waiting room and a woman standing uh, up in a white uniform, like a, like a, rece- a nurse's uniform. 
and this man, the abortionist, he was a very slender, small person, and he said he was from the Philippines. We were making small talk. I could tell when he examined me that he had done it before, that he was not a, you know, he wasn't fumbling. He gave me directions, you know, on the table. And, um, you know, he was explaining what he was doing as he was doing it, like a good practitioner. I didn't know enough. You know, I knew nothing. It was my second pelvic exam. This procedure was also unusual because he uh, inserted a plug of medical seaweed in my cervix, which allowed the cervix to open slowly, which was a good technique at the time and probably still now. But I had really bad cramps all night in a motel room, and my poor parents were like comforting each other, and I was like trying not to be freaked out. Uh, but it worked out okay. I had this procedure, a DNC, the next day, and they took me. We went back to that house, and uh, I was okay. I didn't get an infection. I didn't get raped, which was a circumstance of a lot of women, and I didn't die. So I felt very fortunate. When we come back... The police did not do anything. The politicians did not do anything because of the moral authority of these clergy people. They were left alone. An unexpected lifeline for people needing abortions. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. In the 1960s, as abortion goes underground, support networks start to emerge around the country to help women find safe, if not yet legal, abortions. What a lot of people don't realize is that religious leaders were helping too. My name is the Reverend Barbara Gerlach. I was a counselor a coordinator and a trainer with Clergy Consultation Service. From 1971 to 1973 in Northeastern Pennsylvania. 
There is this long history of women in all times and places choosing to have abortions, not always um, safe ones. And clergy were often one of the places that people came. In 1967, um, the Reverend Howard Moody at Judson Memorial Church in New York City and a group of mainline Protestant ministers in New York City and Jewish rabbis wrote an article in the newspaper describing this service that they were offering. They called it Clergy Consultation Service for Abortions. And it was a service to provide women a place to receive support and information to make the decisions that they wanted and needed for a safe and legal abortion in some cases because they were referring some women to England or in, into Mexico, and in some cases, illegal abortions in the places where they were living. We had a brochure that was available in churches and I'm sure in universities and other places. On it was a telephone number and uh, basically an answering service. But one of us was the phone answerer for each week, one member of the service. And we would be the person who would receive the calls. We would meet in an office. We would listen to the woman. We would listen to whatever she was struggling with in her own decisional process. We would provide information. If she chose an abortion, we had an information sheet about how to make the appointment, what it would cost, how to get there. We would encourage them to call us afterwards and certainly to come back. Because no matter what decision a woman makes, there are always going to be questions, second thoughts, losses to be mourned, uh, changes to be, you know, lived into. We also did the kind of talking in various settings and groups and churches about the work we were doing, talking to legislatures in the states we were in about why abortion should be legalized. But we were public. We had numbers that were shared in, I think it was in one state. It was in the, you know, that when you open the, the yellow pages and, and the beginning, there would be clergy consultation service just listed in many phone books. We were listed in phone books. There were thousands of us and we were all around the country providing these resources. And one of the things that was interesting is even in New York, where it, when this started, and it was illegal to refer anyone for an abortion, the police did not do anything. The politicians did not do anything because of the moral authority of these clergy people. They were left alone. No one was prosecuted that I know of for their work. There was fear of it. Um, we all knew we were taking a risk. It felt like an important 
ethical decision. It felt courageous. <laughs> I knew it was, it was, I was cutting ground. It was a hard time to be a woman in ministry, and it was a hard time to be a voice for a woman's right to choose. And it was dangerous. I mean, we were, yes, I was on the cutting edge. And it was a radical thing to do in the sense of being rooted in the truth as I saw it. In Chicago in 1969, another much more secretive group formed to help women get safe abortions. It was known simply as Jane. Here's one of the members. I'm Eileen Smith. I was in Jane and I had an abortion through Jane. I was in Chicago and happened to see the ad for Jane in the underground paper. And I didn't even have a phone at the time. When I called and left the message, somebody called me at work and was so kind and very thoughtful and didn't let anything, you know, they, they knew that what they were dealing with. And they told me that I could pay them off over time, that someone would call and explain everything to me. I'm like, who are these people? Some of the Janes, like Eileen Smith, who had kept their participation secret, are finally coming out into the open, thanks to a new HBO documentary called The Janes, from filmmakers Emma Peldes and Tia Lesson. Here's Tia. This was like a group of very inventive, resourceful young women. They could have been robbing banks. You know, they, they, they got, they were underground. They were secretive. They had it down. And what did they choose to do? They chose, you know, they chose to put their lives on the line to, to help other women in need. It wasn't politics with a big P. It was politics, you know, it was, it was politics as personal. It's not an overstatement to say, Eileen, that the Janes were a godsend for you. Uh, and, and they were not only kind, but supportive. And you talk about the woman who drove you was seven months pregnant. Mm -hmm. I was so impressed. And why, why were you impressed by that? Well, first of all, I knew these people were doing something illegal and putting themselves out there for me. And I was in a room with a bunch of other people. And I had to go by myself. I remember reading a book and being really like, you know, anxious. And this woman walks in and it's like, oh, the driver's here. And she's seven months pregnant. I'm like, I thought it was so cool that someone who clearly wanted to have a baby, because I knew I wanted to have kids. I really knew I did, was willing to put herself out there for someone who couldn't or didn't want to have a baby right then. It just, it really, it really impressed me. I was like, whoa. So, you know, we all get in the car and she drove and was so nice and explained everything. The woman who sat with me while I had the abortion was amazing. You know, I, you walked into this bedroom and she said, you know, get undressed from the bottom down. I'm going to blindfold you. And I thought, oh, this sounds horrible. But she was so nice and sat there. And then the person who came in to do the abortion, who I assumed was a doctor and wasn't, he was so personable. I mean, he was just relax. This won't take too long. You're not, you know, uterus feels good. He explained everything. And I just remember being really shaky because I hadn't eaten anything. I remember standing up afterward, you know, when he left the room, she took the blindfold off. And then I went to stand up and I almost 
just crashed. And she goes, you haven't eaten anything. And she brought me into this kitchen and gave me a cup of tea and a hard boiled egg. And I just, you know, you're like, where, where am I? This is, this is like, wow, okay. It was like the most positive medical experience I'd ever had. Never mind illegal abortion. When it was discovered that Jane's quote-unquote doctor didn't have a medical license, instead of calling it quits, the Janes dug in deeper. It gave the group, uh, you know, an in on, hey, if you're not a doctor, then, you know, why don't we learn how to do it? So, you know, a couple people got trained and it was pretty, it was pretty amazing. There were a bunch of different jobs. There was somebody who, you know, took the phone calls and took all the information. And then there was the people that organized the, the information. We had meetings. They would bring all the cards to the meetings. We had, you know, some people that went to what we called the front where people met. They sometimes brought their kids. The people that ran the front, we had to have food, tea, coffee, stuff for the kids to play with. And then there were people that worked the actual abortion. And then there was a person driving. And besides that, you were doing counseling. So you got a group of people to call. And then you tell them where you lived. They were going to come to your house. You'd set up a time. And then you would explain to them exactly what was going to happen. They were going to be going (laughs) to one apartment or house, driven to another one. And, you know, you told them what to expect. So, you know, that, that took up a lot. And that's, I love doing the counseling. I mean, because you met all these interesting people. But, you know, so there were a, a bunch of different things you ended up doing. And usually it was a combination of those things. I was young. I really didn't have a lot to lose. A lot of me thought that was very cool, you know? I mean, we got to, it was something illegal, but very cool. And plus the work was so immediate. You know, you could think about it, but then there there was like another 30 calls coming in of people asking for abortion. So you were like, well, you know, we got to keep taking this information down and going to the meetings and putting the medications in and setting, you know, the work was just made it all so immediate. Dr. Warren Hearn was a medical student back in the mid-1960s. He saw firsthand what unsafe illegal abortions were doing to women. The main thing uh, that I experienced was taking care of women on the gynecology ward. And my classmates and I would be up just about all night, every night, taking care of these women who were very critically ill with sepsis, with overwhelming infection. I really didn't understand what was going on. I knew they were very sick. Uh, And nobody talked about this, but I learned later that these were women who had probably had an unsafe illegal abortion, and they were suffering from the effects of that. I was simply struck by how sick they were. Again, here's Leslie Regan. By the 1960s, the major public hospitals in in Chicago and New York and L.A., they have five or 6,000 women every single year coming in, following an abortion, bleeding, injured with a perforated uterus or perforated intestines, um, and infection. This is part of what fuels the movement to decriminalize abortion and, and the support of doctors, where the majority of doctors are a favor uh, reforming and repealing the laws because they see the results and they know, they've been taught in medical school, 
They might be performing them themselves. They know that abortion can be perfectly safe, a perfectly simple procedure, and that this should not be happening. There should not be women bleeding and dying. They could see it's a disaster, that, that it's mostly poor women, high proportions of black women and Latino women, and that it's completely inequitable and unfair in terms of who is able to get those safe abortions from doctors, the therapeutic abortions, and everybody else. A growing national push for reform continued. Doctors were joined by lawyers, activists, and clergy lobbying state legislatures. Again, here's Reverend Barbara Gerlach of the Clergy Consultation Service. We kept statistics and who these women were, their ages, if they had a religious affiliation, the decision that they made. With the information that was gathered between 67 and 1970, the clergy who were involved in clergy consultation service had a major impact on the debate that went into the legalization of abortion in New York State in 1970. In 1970, the New York State Assembly voted to legalize abortion up to 24 weeks. So, you know, it's it's becoming more available, but not everybody could find the information. Not everyone ever heard about Jane, called Jane, uh, called the collective or or knew where to go. And, and, And even as it becomes legal in New York and they're sending people to New York, not everybody could go. They, they never found out about them. And so there were people, I mean, there's cases of, of women who died um, in those years when, you know, legal abortion was legal in some states and they could have gone there, but they didn't have the money. They didn't have any way to go. States may have been chipping away at restrictive abortion laws, but something bigger had to be done. Sometimes when someone doesn't really know who I am, They've heard that I'm a lawyer, but they don't know much about me. And I'd say, well, have you ever heard of the case of Roe versus Wade? Next week on Abortion, the Body Politic, Roe and its unraveling. Abortion, the Body Politic is executive produced by me, Katie Couric, and was created by a small team led by our intrepid supervising producer, Lauren Hansen. Editing and sound design by Derek Clements and Jessica Kreinchich. Research by Nina Perlman. And a special thanks to KCM producers, Courtney Litz and Adriana Fazio. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? 
Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.